He's got the knife to his throat again. He's had a lot to drink. Wife left yesterday. She took both the kids. I've already been briefed on the crisis by my negotiator coordinator, Jason, over the phone. But as I arrive at the rendezvous point, RVP, I check in with the incident commander and get an update. A police incident commander sets up an RVP for all units attending, keeping a record of everyone who's there and what department they're from. I hear the RVP telling the control room that the negotiator is now on the scene. The subject is male, alone in his home, armed with a large kitchen knife and threatening to slit his throat if he's approached. Home is a small modern house at the end of Murdoch Close, a cul-de-sac in East London. The police are here because this guy rang a relative and she was so scared by how distraught he sounded that she called 999. It's also Christmas night, a really bad time to be drinking far too much on your own. Police activity always creates a buzz. The Territorial Support Group, six specially trained constables and their supervisor, is clustered for a briefing. Alongside their van sit two blue light cars and an ambulance. Radios are crackling. White and blue tape seals off the street. If the man with the knife shows any sign that he's about to harm himself or barricades the house or poses an immediate threat to an officer or to me, the TSG will take immediate action. I quickly call my negotiator coordinator Jason to let him know that I've arrived. One vital thing, I ask the incident commander. What's this guy's name? He's called Sam. Are you happy to engage? Yes, I say. I am. He's in crisis and he needs help. I'm here to listen to Sam, to calm him, to get him to trust me and to bring the standoff to an end. This is the job of a hostage and crisis negotiator. Christmas Day at my sister Dainey's in West London has been lovely. My parents joined us, my brother-in-law cooked great food, I played with my niece and I'd also taken Cora, my German shepherd, who gets nervous if she's left alone all day. The family's been chilling, except for me. That's because I've been on call across the holiday period. And on call, there's a bit of your brain that never quite turns off. An extra edge of alertness. Of course, you don't drink. From time to time, you touch your pocket, making sure the work mobile's with you. You keep on glancing just to check that the ring is still turned on, because if that phone screen lights up, it's an emergency and everyone will be under pressure. You don't want to put the rest of the team to extra trouble trying to get hold of you. As the light begins to fade and what's left of the turkey is wrapped carefully in tin foil, I'm surprised that the phone has stayed silent. When I finally hear it in the late afternoon, I feel a prickle of excitement. The day you don't respond like that, my instructor once said when I was training, the day you don't just want to drop everything and go to work, that's the time to ask yourself, should I still be a crisis negotiator? As I pick the phone up, I see Jason's name and I know what he will say. Do you want to save a life? He always asks, cutting to the quick of what it means to do this job. Yes, I do, I answer. Then he tells me what I'm faced with and where I need to be. I briefly explain to my family what's happening. I've got a negotiation. 
how long will it be, Nick? No idea, Dad, but you already knew that. Yeah, you're right, I did. And I asked them if they mind if I leave Cora there, which they don't, of course, bless them. My mind's already on the situation ahead. I'm thinking about what might be going on in this guy's life and what could have driven him to this point of crisis. I'm recalling previous similar scenarios, starting to work out what I might say. I contact the Pan-London police supervisor who sends a fast car to pick me up and take me to the scene. It's not long before I'm sitting in the back, the accelerator is floored and the driver flicks the switches to activate the police siren and lights, blues and twos across the city. Murdoch Close is dark. As I walk along the pavement, the outside world drops away. My colleagues' voices, the hiss of radios, the festive lights in windows are gone. There's only the tap of my footsteps and the sound of my breath. The guy with the knife lives in number six, and I can see a half-inflated child's football on the little patch of grass, along with quite a bit of rubbish. It's sad how unchristmassy the place looks. No one has bothered with a tree or decorations, or even to straighten things up. Perhaps they don't celebrate the 25th of December, or things have got so bad between the husband and wife that it just hasn't seemed worth celebrating. The subject is standing in the doorway. It's hard to make him out because the street is so dark and there's a light right behind him in the hall. Until my eyes adjust, he's in silhouette, but I can clearly see the knife that he's clutching. I walk up to the uniformed officer, positioned on the pavement at the end of the path. Can you check if Sam minds you having a word with me, I ask. The constable takes a few steps up the path so that he can put the question to the figure in the doorway. I do this because I want Sam to feel that he has some say in what's happening and that he's being consulted. After all, he's lost control of everything else. He didn't want the police here. Someone else has called them, and as far as he's concerned, they're intruding in his life without his consent. And if you're highly emotional, especially if alcohol's involved, and then you see people talking about you, it's pretty easy to end up feeling paranoid. The constable walks back to me. Yeah, he's okay with that. What's Sam been telling you? I ask him. And the constable explains how the guy spent Christmas Day by himself, how he's been drinking, and he says he doesn't want to be here anymore. He's repeatedly stated that he wants to die. If the police come any closer, he says he'll cut his throat. He said that more than once. I think he's pretty scared. Have you got a relationship with him, would you say? No, it's very new. Do you mind if I take over? Of course not. If I can see that another officer has really got in tune with someone in crisis, I'm totally prepared for them to go on doing the talking. Once trust has been developed, it's better not to change the dynamic, but there's not been enough time here for the two of them to have built a rapport. Stay here, please, I tell the constable. We'll do this together. If I move towards him, stay with me. The role of negotiator is all about listening. It's about being in the space with someone who is desperate. It's not about you or what you think or how you're going to fix everything or what a hero you are. The negotiator's role 
is to hear what this person is saying, how they're feeling, what exactly has gone wrong, how their problem has blown up into this moment of extremity, and then to help them find a way out of it. I take a few steps up the path. This lets me look at Sam more closely, although the deep shadows around us still aren't helping. He's in his late 20s, I'd say, with dark, dishevelled hair. What I see is desperation, not aggression. He just looks totally lost and confused. I don't think this level of misery is likely to turn into suicidal violence, but I also notice how tightly the blade of the knife he's holding to his throat is pressed to his skin. If he panics, I think, he might just do it. Hi Sam, I say. My name is Nicky. I've been talking to this guy here. I point to the constable. And he's told me that you're feeling pretty rubbish today. And it looks like you've been drinking. I don't use the word colleague for my fellow officer because I know that Sam is frightened of the police and I don't want him to identify me with them. If he thinks I'm just another one who's here to arrest him, there's zero chance he'll trust me. Sam drops the hand that's holding the knife to his side and takes several jerky strides forward towards me. It's a very sudden move and it does seem quite threatening, but I'm watching his face and his expression is terror. I think he's shocked that I've approached him and doesn't know what to do. I step back and raise my voice. Put the knife down, Sam, I say loudly. Please don't walk towards me. You're frightening me. My voice will alert my colleagues round the corner to what's happening. I know my negotiator coordinator, Jason, will be on the scene by now. He's a chief superintendent and highly experienced. The whole team will be watching from a distance, keeping everyone updated. Sam retreats to his doorstep and stands there staring at me. You look lonely, I say to him. You must be feeling sad about what's happened today and yesterday. There's a very long pause. I give him time. Go away, he mumbles. His voice is very slurred. I don't want you here. I'd like to stay and help you, I say. Can you put the knife down? I think that would be safer for everyone. He mutters something I can't catch. He's barely coherent. Then he slowly lowers the hand with the knife to his side and sits down heavily on the step. I try another careful step towards him, but he immediately raises the knife again and holds it back against his throat. This threat of self-harm is the only way that he can feel in control. Sam, I say, but then he staggers to his feet and disappears into the house. I'm losing track of how long I've been here, and I don't look at my phone. I keep my focus entirely on the present. When you negotiate, time vanishes. There's just the moment that you're in and the next decision that you're making. I even lose peripheral vision sometimes, as the world contracts into only what's in front of me. But it's night time in midwinter and I can feel the temperature dropping. Fortunately, I'm wearing a very warm coat for situations just like this one, because a lot of negotiations happen out of doors. I keep snacks in my crisis situation backpack too. 
I don't remember exactly where I heard the saying, any fool can get cold, wet and hungry, but it made me determined never to be that fool, along with my dictaphone. When I have that backpack with me, I'm ready for anything. Now Sam's gone inside. I'm worried he might drink even more. He could take tablets, pick up another knife, make this situation even more unstable. Through the kitchen window, I watch him stumbling around, but then he moves away. From what I can see, the place is in a mess. I stand and wait, acutely aware of the silence. A minute or two later, he comes out. He's still got the knife. But at least now, the blade isn't against his neck. He's looking down at it, turning it over and over in his hands. Sam, I say, I don't know if you're drinking more alcohol, but that might make this situation worse. It's not the best idea. Don't tell me what to do, he slurs. It's my life. Don't tell me not to drink. I'm not telling you that you can't drink. It's just that it makes it harder to work out what's going on and to help you. He doesn't answer, but again he sits down on his front step. His movements are sluggish. It's not the drink, I think. It's exhaustion too. He can't have slept last night. I can see you're having a desperate day, I say to him, and I would really like to help you. He turns his head towards me, and again I step a little closer, into the shaft of light that's falling from the door. You want to arrest me, he mumbles. We don't want to arrest you. There's an ambulance round the corner. They're here for you. The paramedics can help you. I can see him trying to weigh me up. He's highly agitated, so his actions are hard to predict. Everything's coming from his emotional brain right now. It can be difficult to get people back from this kind of altered consciousness so that they can use their reason. That's why the TSG is standing by. If Sam suddenly barricades himself in or uses violence, they can storm the house, which is called dynamic entry, with their shields, protecting him from harm without endangering themselves. You just get back or I'll do it, Sam shouts out suddenly. I'll cut my throat. Get back right now or I'll kill myself. I don't think he will. His threats seem half-hearted, but I don't rely on my instinct. I've known situations where it's been totally wrong, and those cases have taught me to trust my training and experience instead. The crucial issue here is the same as in every negotiation, every standoff, every moment of crisis. How can I get him to trust me?